If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The passage will be on the screen in just a minute if you want to follow along there. Uh, we're continuing in a year-long series on our tagline at Green Tree, uh, Dig In, Branch Out, and Live It Up. And we spent the first 10 weeks of the year digging in the book of Colossians, and now we've moved on from now until early summer. We're going to be talking about branching out, uh, looking at different hot-button topics in our culture and, uh, and how we can uh, interact with those topics in our culture uh, for the cause of Christ. So how do, we, how do we have an impact to the people around us? How do we bear witness to the grace and the mercy of Jesus uh, in branching out and caring for others? That's kind of the overall uh, theme. So we're looking at different topics. Today we're going to look at wealth. Next week we're going to look at poverty. Those are clearly two very uh, important issues in our culture today. So today we're going we're gonna to be spending some time in 1 Timothy and a few other verses as well. Uh, there was an ancient king who literally had become physically sick due to his own greed. Uh, he, was, he was worn down by his consumption and his self-indulgence. So the wise men, the counselors of uh, his court gathered around him and they began to talk about how can we help cure our king uh, of this illness of greed? And they, and they thought uh, and they counseled together and they reasoned together and they finally came up with what they thought was a great solution. So we need to go throughout our entire kingdom and we need to look high and low until we find a man who is perfectly content. And when we find that man, we're going to ask for a shirt, we're going to take his shirt and we're going to put it on our king and we're going to say, King, this is the shirt of a man who is perfectly content. Let that remind you every day to be a man of contentment and not a man of greed or a man who pursues wealth. And so they scoured the land. And they looked high and low, and there was not a person to be found who was perfectly content until they reached the far edges of the kingdom. And there they found a man of perfect contentment. Their plan was going perfectly, except for one problem. He didn't own a shirt. We're not so much going to be talking about wealth this morning, as we're going to be talking about contentment, about godly contentment. Jesus' disciples in 21st century America aren't necessarily much different from their unbelieving friends when it comes to the question of wealth. Does the way we approach wealth create an opportunity for us to branch out and to bear witness to the preeminence of Jesus in our lives, or does our conformity with the world detract from the gospel's credibility? Let me say that again. That's a long question, but it's an important question. Does the manner in which we approach wealth create opportunity to branch out and bear witness to the preeminence of Jesus in our lives, or does our conformity with the world detract from the gospel's credibility? You know, Scripture never says that wealth is wrong. Scripture always says that wealth is dangerous. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, hear the word of God. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we have come to you in praise and worship this morning. We have uh, welcomed one another into uh, this time of worship. We have uh, heard of, of ministry and uh, the Stephen ministry and the care in this congregation. Father, we have uh, prayed for our friends uh, as they are in a difficult set of circumstances in their lives. And now, Father, we come to worship you with our minds, with our intellect. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning. Uh, what man has to say about wealth or contentment is irrelevant. It's just one other person's opinion. Father, we need your truth to, to bore deeply into our hearts and our souls and our minds. Father, your truth is the eternal truth. It stands forever. We have sung of that this morning. So Lord, we pray that your eternal truth would now shine its light into our lives in this moment, in this day, in this generation, in this culture. Lord, we, we are a people of wealth. Uh, we are a people who are impacted by the pursuit of wealth on a daily basis. We could be tempted to be defensive and to say, oh no, that's not me. Lord, I pray that uh, your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds. Not my words, Lord. They're no more important than anyone else's, but your word. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds and to apply your scripture to our lives today. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, where we're headed this morning, just to, to, to give you a little uh, sense of relief, is we're not going to end up in the application time by saying, and so now what we want you to do is give money to the church. That's, this is not a, a sermon about giving. Now, we should give. We should be generous. You're going to hear me use the word generous uh, at a couple of points in the sermon, but this is a sermon about contentment. This is a sermon uh, to a group of people, myself included, I'm preaching to myself this morning, who live in a day and age of great wealth and where wealth is the marker. It is, it is the, the, the way we measure, in many respects, our worth as an individual. And so this is a passage of Scripture that's very, very important, I believe, to each one of us this morning. The sermon in a sentence is simply this. Godly contentment protects our souls, and it creates questions in the minds of unbelievers. So first, we want to understand that, that God has given us this word in order to protect us, in order to nurture us, in order to care for us as his sons and daughters through Christ. But he's also called us, as to use our little tagline, to branch out, to be a witness in the world. And I believe that when Christians actually follow Jesus, when disciples of Jesus actually look like him when it comes to contentment, the people around them, whether they be co-workers or neighbors, friends, fellow classmates at school, they begin to say, there's something different about you. And there's something that you have that I don't, and there's something you have that I want. And what they're seeing is godly contentment. So it's important for us to understand this passage today, given the culture and the day in which we live, if we really do want to branch out, if we really do want people to see our lives and to hear our words and to understand that there is power behind them, not because we figured it all out, but because of the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus. I have four observations about this text this morning. Let's dive in. The first thing I want us to see in verse six is that Paul defines for us the objective. Now there is great gain in godliness 
with contentment. What's important to see here is that Paul is after godliness. Contentment's actually one of the byproducts. It's not the only byproduct, but it's one of those. But godliness means placing God at the center of my life. Uh, we have sung songs, and we're going to sing a couple songs at the end of the service that talk about putting God at the center of our lives and us living in that context. Paul wants us to understand that putting God at the center of our life is the most important thing we can do. And, and if we do that, if we trust God through Christ Jesus, if we make him our Lord, then what begins to happen is our lives begin to re, begin reshaped in this question of contentment. And it begins to be something that is a mark of our lives and not something that we're grasping at from time to time. Contentment, some words that you could use to describe contentment, serenity, satisfaction, at ease with oneself, at ease with the world. Not that the world is easy, but that we, we are at ease in where we are, which means that contentment is spiritual. It's not circumstantial. Uh, if you're of my generation and my ilk, you remember the old Steve Martin movie, which I'm not endorsing this morning, a movie called The Jerk. And uh, he plays this character that comes to a point in the movie where he was really, really rich, and then he lost everything. And he's literally standing in the house that the bank is taking over, and he's got to get out. And he's got a bathrobe on and some slippers, and he says, I don't need anything. I don't need anything at all. I don't need anything uh, except this thermos. And he picks up a thermos off his house. All I need is this thermos. This thermos starts to shuffle. He says, all I need is this thermos um, and, 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 and this lamp. All I need is this thermos and this lamp. That's all I need. All I need is this thermos, this lamp, and this chair. That's all. And he, and he starts walking out with almost everything that's in the room, right? Why? Because comedy reflects reality. That's what's in our hearts. For you and for me, most of the time, if we're honest, if we want to really be truthful this morning, our contentment is based on our circumstances. It's not based on our spiritual well-being with God. And Paul, I believe rightly so through the Spirit of God, says there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Contentment is spiritual. Uh, I've told you, I think, before stories uh, of Stonewall Jackson, the Confederate general who, uh, when, the, when the, you know, the battle was joined, uh, never seemed to, the, to shrink back. He was always kind of out in front to the point where his men thought he was being a little too risky. But when others were ducking for cover, he was, you know, he was leading the troops. That's how he got the name Stonewall. There he is standing like a stone wall. But one of his aides asked him one time, how can you do that when, you know, when the bullets are whizzing about your head? And he said, I don't concern myself with the moment of my death because that's in God's hands. And I am as safe on the battlefield as I am in, in my own bedroom because God is the one in whom I'm placing my trust. He had a sense of contentment, a sense of serenity in the midst of chaos. Why? Because he knew that he belonged to God. Not that his circumstances were good. I mean, he lived in one of the worst times in our nation's history. And yet there he was trusting in God and believing that he could be content in that circumstance. Stonewall Jackson was not a perfect man. He didn't live in perfect times. But that moment speaks to the spiritual nature of contentment. Is your spirit, contentment spiritual? Is mine? Or is it circumstantial? Godly contentment rejects the notion of self-sufficiency. It embraces the truth of the sufficiency of Christ for us. Paul says, now there is great gain with godly, uh, in godliness with contentment. He defines the objective, but he also states the obvious 
but often overlooked truth of verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, I'm not sure anybody would argue with that. Uh, when you come into the world, you come in you know, naked, and, and you need someone to care for you and wrap you up and, and, and nurture you and feed you. And when you die, you go out the same way. You don't take anything into the world. You don't take anything out of the world. But this is not new information. Paul isn't saying something that hasn't been said before in Scripture. If you go back to the book of Job, and Job is in the midst of his crisis, and he's lost everything, and here's part of his reflection. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. He goes on to say, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. I will bless the name of the Lord. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, one of the wisest people that ever walked the earth about a thousand years after Job lived. And he came from his mother's womb. He's talking about mankind in general. He shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Perhaps it's stating the obvious, but we need to be reminded because we overlook it and we live as if this world were all there were. But if Job and Solomon and Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are correct this morning, that means that greed in this life is actually irrational. It actually doesn't make sense when you look at it in the context of all of life. Jesus says as much in Luke chapter 12, I could read a lot of different verses for us this morning in the Gospels about what Jesus says about wealth and about money, but I'm just going to read this particular passage because Jesus is reminding his disciples then, and he's reminding us this morning, that this life is not all there is. And so our investment strategy, so to speak, ought to be something that we give careful spiritual consideration. Luke 12, verses 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I now have nowhere to store my crops. He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is it for the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich towards God. Jesus teaches us that, that there is a life after this earthly existence, and it is the life that goes on for eternity. And our preparation for that life is not the accumulation of wealth in this life, but rather putting our trust in him alone and living a life of contentment, whatever the circumstances around us may be. Uh, if you go and look at the, uh, the pyramids in Egypt, you go look at some of the ancient tombs of the pharaohs, and you look at all of the, the things that are cluttered in these tombs, you find they actually, uh, when a pharaoh was buried, there were actually crates and crates and, and, and um, um, containers of food. There were painted murals, there were statues, there was jewelry, there was gold. Uh, why? Because they wanted the Pharaoh to take enough goods into the next life so that he would be able to have as an extravagant a life in the next life as he had in this life. How do we know that? Because all that stuff is still there. <laughs> he didn't take any of it with him. How ironic that even in death, that culture would be so obsessed as to thinking that that earthly wealth defined their existence forever. 
And yet God says, obviously, you're not taking anything into this, bringing anything in this world. You're not taking anything out. So you may want to adjust your thinking. Well, how do we adjust our thinking? How do we perhaps look at this in a different way? I think that's where we begin to get some understanding in verse 8. Paul says very simply, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be, and there's the word again, content. In other words, it's all about the bar that we set. It's all about the expectation. I mentioned Tom Holly earlier, one of our founding elders. Tom Holly used to say, uh, you know, if you set the bar low enough, you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> That's a great line. You stop and think about it. If you set the bar low enough, you're just not going to be disappointed. Are we willing to set the bar at food and clothing? Are we willing to say, you know what? That's absolutely enough when it comes to contentment in my life. The only way I know to say that is to trust in God completely and to make sure that, that my heart is, is, is thinking along his lines and not mine. It's not about how much, but it's about a godly frame of mind. It's about putting my trust in him. Now, I think it's important that we understand because Paul is giving very direct words. And, and Paul's you could almost say Paul's painting the picture pretty black and white. And, and I would certainly agree with that. But what we need to understand is that Paul is an older man when he wrote this letter to Timothy. Paul isn't 21 or 22 years old and, and writing from that perspective, but rather he's writing from a perspective of many, many years of life. And so what he's telling Timothy are things that he has learned. So you might hear this today and say, boy, that's a pretty tall order. And, and that is a statement with which I would agree. But we need to be on the journey. And we need to be asking God to build within us a heart of contentment. But it doesn't just happen overnight. I don't want you to leave discouraged today because you're struggling with contentment. I, I don't want you to stop the struggle, but we need to understand the context. So Paul uh, has written in a different passage of Scripture back in Philippians. Uh, I'm going to read just a couple of verses for you about this where Paul talks about what he's learned about contentment. And he says this, I am speaking uh, of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Would we be willing as one of our applications today to make that the prayer of our lives? Lord, teach me. I want to learn what Paul learned. I want to understand what he came to under, understand that my investment is in my spiritual relationship with you. And that in this lifelong journey, would you teach me the godliness that leads to contentment. And I want to I call on parents for just a minute here who have younger children. What are you teaching your children about godliness that leads to contentment? Are we teaching this generation of children that the primary relationship in their life is a relationship with Jesus Christ who cares for them? Are we teaching them godly contentment or are we teaching them, uh, even, even subtly without thinking about it, American consumerism? That will cripple them. It will stunt their growth in Christ, while the other will set them free. May we, may we be a church. Because I'm not just talking to parents now, because we take a vow when we baptize our children that we will all collaborate together to the end that they will know Christ, to the end that they will experience 
godly contentment in him. Will we be a congregation that stands out in this regard? Says, Lord, teach us, give us a spirit of contentment. It's all about the bar we set. The last observation in this text, not only does Paul define the objective, not only does he state the obvious, but often overlooked. Not only does he remind us food and clothing, we will be content. But he also, although he didn't know it at the time, he mentions the folly of Sid Finch. Uh, In April of 1985, George Plimpton was a writer for Sports Illustrated. And George Plimpton wrote an article about a guy named Sid Finch. Uh, And I'm going to read a little bit of the history of this story for you. On April 1st, 1985, Sports Illustrated published a cover story about a walk-on at the New York Mets training camp a pitcher who had already been deemed unhittable. Headline, The Curious Case of Sid Finch, author George Plimpton reported that Hayden Sinhatha Sid Finch had been raised in an English orphanage, had learned yoga in Tibet, and could throw a fastball 168 miles per hour. Finch wore just one shoe while pitching, a heavy hiker's boot, Plimpton wrote. He threw a blazing fastball with pinpoint accuracy without warming up. The Mets scouting report gave Finch a nine on fastball velocity control on a scale whose highest score was supposed to be an eight. The photos accompanying Plimpton's story featured Finch with a young Lenny Dykstra and chatting with Mets pitching coach Mel Stottlemyre. Sid Finch captured the minds of radio and TV talk show hosts across the country and became national news. The Mets already had Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling at the top of the rotation. With the addition of Finch, who could pitch on just a day or two's rest, the World Series had seemingly already been decided. Put a mark there, C Cubs 2016. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Then, as many of us remember, a few days later, Sports Illustrated acknowledged that Sid Finch was a figment of Plimpton's imagination. Happy April Fools. How do you get sucked into that story? I was talking to a few guys in between services, and I mentioned that we was going to have this in the sermon. And and one guy said, yeah, I was on Florida, and I was on the beach, and I'm reading this, and I'm getting madder and madder, because that's when the Cardinals and the Mets were going back and forth every year, and couldn't believe how bad it was going to, you know, this was going to be for us. How do we fall for such a story? How do you believe such a tall tale? You believe it because there's something in your heart that makes you want to believe it. And why do we believe that that earthly wealth is, is something that will solve all of our problems? It's because somewhere deep in our heart where we don't necessarily always want to go, we want to believe that's true. So I'd worked on this sermon all week, had, had, had been thinking over it, wrestling with it, and praying about it. And I was watching yesterday afternoon as the Cardinals were throwing batting practice to the Reds. Uh, unfortunately, it was after the game had started. And... Um, uh, tough day, tough day yesterday. But uh, uh, I was watching, and a commercial came on. And normally, I just you know kind of turn off the sound. But I don't know why. I, this one just caught my attention, and it was this beautiful car. And I, I don't remember exactly. I think it was a Cadillac, but I'm not sure. And they're talking about it, and it's smooth as silk, and it's just this wonderfully orchestrated commercial. And at the end of the commercial, this really great seductive voice comes on and says, "And you deserve this luxury." And I prepared this sermon, and I've been praying about it all week, and I watched that commercial, and I said to myself, that's exactly right. 
I deserve that kind of luxury. <laughs> Boom, right back into it. So that's why I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Sitting, you know that pickup truck you wanted next year that might be put on hold. But um, that's, that's where we want to go. That's where the natural, sinful inclination of our hearts takes us. And so Paul is wise to call us out and say, that's a big story. It just isn't true. Don't fall for it. Look at how he, how he paints an honest picture in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul says that's the reality of being consumed with wealth, with not being content uh, with, with God alone and allowing him to be the source of your contentment. When you run after anything else, it's going not just to fall short, it's actually going to do harm to your soul. Look at how he, he continues that argument in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many Pangs. That, that word pierce there is actually impaled. It's actually kind of a gruesome picture there. You know, you, the, you think of the lance thrust into someone. That's actually the technical language he uses there. You're actually, it's like taking a spear and jabbing it into yourself when you live for wealth in this world, when you don't live your life on, in godly contentment. You can have the beautiful home, you can have the beautiful car, you can have the engorged bank account, and you can have a cold, dead heart. Not because wealth is wrong, but because wealth is dangerous. It tempts us to find our contentment in something other than God. And should we fall into that temptation, our witness to the world will be harmed. We will become like the world instead of being apart from the world and following Christ. And people won't look at us and say, gee, I wish I had what they had. They might do it from a covetous point of view, because maybe we, maybe we were able to amass a lot of wealth. But they'll never see the character of Christ in our lives, because it will be absent. Because we'll be, we'll be stabbing this, the spiritual life that God wants to create in us. So how do we apply this text this morning? Before I, before I do that, I want to give one side note, and that is this. As we talk about application, uh, I realize that as we hear the Word of God and the Word of God convicts us, that there are, there are folks who could hear this and say, I want that godly contentment, but I've lived so far out of my means for so long, my, my finances are so upside down, I don't think I could ever get to that place where I could become content, where I really could manage what God has given me appropriately. And I want you to know, we talked about Stephen ministry this morning, but I want you to know we have a ministry at Green Tree that helps people figure out their finances. And if that's you this morning, and, and I know from past experience, the weight that you carry, it never leaves you. It never goes away. It wakes you up at night. It, it, it wakes you up early in the morning. You're always thinking about how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to get by? I've been at that place in my life and it's miserable. And, and when you get there, you think, well, there's no hope for me to get out of it, but there is. And so before we get into the, the overarching application, if that's you this morning, come find me afterwards. And we can just talk very quietly. I can get you with the folks in our church that, that take care of that ministry, that can walk with you. It may take a year, it may take two years, three years, but they will be faithful to care for you and, and to help you uh, get back control of that. If that's some need you have, please come and talk to me about that. But overarching. Do I look any different from the world when it comes to wealth and contentment? Is the preeminence of Jesus really shaping 
my contentment? Or if I'm honest, is it something else? My guess is we probably go back and forth between the two. But that'd be a great question to talk over at lunch today. Where are we when it comes to contentment as a family or, or as individuals? Or find a friend who you can sit down and, and chat with about that. But just asking the question would be a good application. But also, secondly, realize the, the power that is in the witness of a life that is filled with godly contentment. You will stand out from the crowd if you truly learn to rest in Christ. Our culture is a culture of discontentment. That's why I gave you that example of that commercial. Commercial, that is just one. Commercial after commercial is always telling us you just need this much more to be happy. You're really discontent right now, and we're here to tell you that so you can become content. We need to understand that when we reject that, and when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we say, Lord, food and clothing, good to go. Anything else is a blessing. Anything else you want to do, that, that's up to you. Because my circumstances don't dictate my contentment. The fact that you love me and gave your son for me on the cross, that you've loved me from all eternity past to all eternity future, that, that I'm not just built for this life, that I'm going to live for eternity, to eternity, and you've provided a home for me, I can be perfectly content even in the difficult circumstances of this life. When you begin to live that out, people are going to begin to notice. They're going to begin to ask questions. You won't have to think about, how do I branch out? It will happen because people will want to know what God is doing in your life. But ultimately, I guess this morning, the question really comes down to who controls my heart? Does wealth control my heart? Does the pursuit of wealth control my heart? Do, do I want to be defined by what I have or am I willing to hear the word of God this morning? Are you willing to hear the word of God this morning? It's not about, not about how much you have or how much you even want to have. This, this issue of contentment can be an issue with people that have wealth or people that don't have wealth that simply want it. But if the spirit of God is living and ruling in my heart, it's going to give me a, a contentment that even I can't explain sometimes in the moments that, that are dark. Saying, I'm not sure why, but I'm simply trusting in God, and I know he's gracious, and I know he's good, and my contentment comes from him. That will be a witness to this world, and it will be a protection for our soul. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you care so deeply for us, that you, that you cover every facet of our lives. Lord Jesus, that you, you talk so much about the accumulation of wealth and and how it could be a danger to us, how it is a danger to us, how it deflects our attention from what's really truly important, which is your love for us, your grace and your mercy given to us on the cross. Well, Father, forgive us, forgive me for my desire to have more, to be less generous, to, to, to hoard what I have, to not share with others, because I can only be content when I, when I have the next thing. Father, teach us that godliness, allowing you to control our lives, resting in your grace and your mercy and your care, actually leads to those desires beginning to ebb and the flow of contentment beginning to take root in my heart, to saturate every being of my existence, that I would glorify you in the way I live and perhaps even be used by you to point someone else to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.